My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. What comes to mind when you hear the term sex addict? If you're like many folks, you probably imagine someone who has way too much sex. But there is so much more involved than that. About 12 million people have the addiction, according to the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, despite increasing seriously harmful consequences to oneself and others. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where good girls go for sexual empowerment. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so pleased to introduce you all to a woman who knows these effects firsthand. Five years ago, after her husband first disclosed his sexually compulsive behaviors, our guest, who today will simply be going by uh, M rather than her full first name, is living a happy single life. But the journey there hasn't been straightforward or without setbacks. She's here to share her story with hope that it might help other spouses or partners who are suddenly finding themselves and their lives just completely overturned by sex addiction. Thank you so much for joining us. Em, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. It's good to be here. Take us back to five years ago. How did you discover that your then-husband had a problem? Um, It was a very gradual process, which it often is. Um, But the big day um, was on my 38th birthday, um, and he... Uh, I had just had surgery, actually. We were trying to conceive, and I had a lot of ovarian cysts. And so that surgery was in September. And then, you know, the doctors always joke with you, you should be going at it like rabbits so that you can get pregnant. And uh, we could not have sex. He could not have an erection. He could not um, look at me. Um, he kept avoiding being home. And then on my birthday, which is, you know, the one day of the year you'd really like to get laid, of course, uh, he started to cry. And uh, he couldn't talk to me, and he didn't talk for about, I don't know, 10 hours till the next morning. Uh, He just held me, and then it it was a series of disclosures, which I know now is quite common, but I didn't know at the time. It's called staggering disclosure. And so he first just told me, you know, I have have some things to tell you. They're really going to hurt. And um, then just sort of pieces, but he made me guess. Like, he couldn't talk about it. And so I had to say, you know, what's going on? Is it, do you, is it somebody, like, are you hurt? He suffered from depression. And so, you know, I was asking about that. And he said, no, it's something else. And then eventually I got to the question of, you know, are you seeing somebody else? And he said, yes. And then not just one. And I said, a, a lot of people? And he said, yes. And I said, um, are you having... Um, unprotected. Eventually, we got to, are you having unprotected sex with strangers? And he said, oh, well, you know, only after I get to know them. <gasps> oh, how terrifying. <laughs> so, wow. Right. And, At any point, you know, he's having you guess. Right. Was sex addict even in your I, uh Cheating was in my mind because before the surgery, you get tested for STDs, and I had one. Oh, my God. Um, and it, it was totally asymptomatic, um, but... I, you know, I had to go on antibiotics, but because men don't get tested regularly, he was able to lie about it and say, wow. oh, well, you know, I might have always had this, but never been tested. Oh, and gosh. and it's not a guaranteed transmission between partners. And so, you sure. know, if you want to you trust your partner. probably wanted to believe him. Of course you do. I, I was mean, trying to have gosh. a baby with him. <laughs> That's so, incredible. Right. So you're having these conversations about having a baby. Right. And yet he doesn't want to have sex. That must have felt... I mean, rejection must have been huge. What was going through your mind? Um, uh, Shock, mostly. Um, I had known, uh, I had actually sort of diagnosed him with depression about five years previous, about five years in, um, because he stopped wanting to have sex for long periods of time. Um, And now I know that that's actually a cycle called sexual anorexia, where he is going through this shame cycle about saying, 
I'm no good, and so I'm not going to have sex with other people. And then he um, stops having sex with you once he starts. He convinces himself he's no good, so he might as well do it. And then as soon as he does it, then he has uh, a lot of regret. And then he might come back to you and want to renew your, you know, your relationship. And then so there was these cycles where he would withdraw and then come back and withdraw and come back. And that had been going on for almost five years. So when he would come back, I imagine that gave you this kind of false sense of hope. Right. He's getting better. Things are going better. Right. And I actually, um, so we were married 10 years, and so that happened at about year five. That cycle started, and that summer, I had lost 45 pounds. I had gone through, like, the whole Weight Watchers thing. So, healthfully, this was a goal of yours? It was. And, okay. And he didn't notice. You're kidding. No, he didn't notice. I had lost 30 pounds, and one of his coworkers said, wow, you know, your ever-shrinking wife was looking really great. And he came home, and he's like, hey, I guess so, huh? And he never wanted me in that period of time. Wow. Never. And, you know, like I had, that was sort of the last, my last efforts to try to be what he wanted me to be. And at that point, I realized it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. It, it completely doesn't. And so I'm actually, I think, fortunate because I realized that early on and I knew he had a family history of depression. And so I had sort of, I misdiagnosed what it was, but sure, it had the same effect. So. And it's easy to misdiagnose when there's such a lack of information, which we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. get to here in just a minute. <laughs> right. So so you're finding out about his uh, promiscuity right. and these dangerous behaviors he's, he's participating in. How much did you want to know? Did you want to know how many partners? Did you want to right. know what kind of partners? Did you, right. did you want to know who these people were? That's a really good question. And um, the first thing that I did was go to the bookstore and look up anything on sexual addiction I could get my hands on because he said I think I'm an addict and he had said that a few times throughout our relationship but had never admitted to any wrongdoing so why would I think he'd said an addict to sex yes. or even and at the same time you were kind of not having it but and we weren't often. having it so yeah. it's really confusing yeah. and uh like um one year in uh right around our first anniversary I found transgendered porn and in an email, and it was completely on accident, and he, had, he was setting up a date at a hotel to have sex with somebody um, in that community. And when I asked him about it, I, you know, of course, I confronted him and said, we have to go to therapy or we're going to get divorced. And he just lied and said, oh, this is just spam. Everybody gets it. But he said, the reason that I like it is because it's different. Uh, you know, I'm not gay. I'm not, you know, anything, but it's really different. And that turns me on. And when we went to therapy, he completely, he wouldn't talk about it. He deflected away from it. And I never again found porn. I never again found emails. There were no suspicious texts. There was nothing. So I was like, oh, well, okay. You know, like the he put working. that away. The therapy is working. So when I, when he, when we did figure out that this is what it was, um, I, you know, I went and I, uh, the books sort of warn you against asking too much because you can't get it out of your head once you ask. It's there forever. I mean, I remember every sentence that he told me about it, and I probably, it's only a paragraph. Because wow. he didn't want to talk about it, and I didn't want, I just didn't want things haunting me. Sure. And so I just wanted to know how long it had been going on. But he couldn't tell me the truth about that. And what happens is that he's like, oh, well, when things got stressful at work and I changed jobs. Well, that was like a year previous. Mm -hmm. And then then I started, like, the more you think about it, you realize these patterns have been going on. And, and, and the dishonesty. So how do you know And the dishonesty, right. The and so then when you ask him again, his story changes. And you ask him again, and his story changes again. Aww. And so that's how I figured out eventually that it had been going on for five years, once that sexual anorexia cycle started. Wow. Yeah. So you started couples therapy. Was that your first step? Because I imagine, so you're in the state of shock. Right. And you know something needs to change. Yeah. What was your kind of inclination as far as moving forward and trying to either yeah. fix or, or change your situation? Um, I was um, really not interested in, uh, we did couples therapy like the first year in our marriage. And I knew that he had hidden during that process. And so I didn't want to do that again. I knew that I needed somebody to talk to separately from him, not in the room. And so I found I called around. I'm lucky that I had several friends who had good advice about how to find a therapist that jives with you. And it's totally okay to call and say, 
what are your practices? Are you, you know, goal oriented? Are you just strictly yeah, talk therapy? Yeah, there's all these different approaches, right? There's, there's all these approaches. Yeah. And, um, and she mentioned that she worked with uh, vets, that she specialized in trauma was one of the things that she did. And I just thought that sounded like a good fit. My dad's a vet with PTSD. And uh, and I felt really traumatized. Of course, right. And so uh, she did not specialize in sex therapy, but uh, the first session there, I'll, the only thing that I could say, I mostly just cried, and it was the first time I cried, and I almost only cried with her. I could mm. not cry in our house because it couldn't be. I realize now I couldn't be that vulnerable in our house because it wasn't a safe place to be. Um, and so she was wonderful. But all I asked was, how did I get here? Yeah. How did this happen to me? Sure. And uh, and so then you go through this crazy information gathering stage where you just want to know everything about it. And this was late 2009 that this happened, early uh, 2010. And just then were, were things starting to really get going uh, community-wise with this. And um, But I did not find um, a lot of stuff for me. Initially, my instinct was to find stuff for him. So I got him all these books on sex addiction, and I was like, these are the groups that you can go to, and this is what it is. And we would read it together, or we would share passages, and he'd be like, yes, this is me. And we discovered the master of the universe syndrome to be truly true for him. Mm, it's like a narcissism? Yeah. It's where they feel like morality doesn't, uh, normal morality doesn't apply to them. Uh. And uh, keep in mind, I was a teacher and a sex educator. Oh my god. And uh, and he was a paramedic firefighter. We're like the pillars of the freaking community. Oh we thought I thought that's who we were. Yeah. And uh, you know, here I am completely blindsided by a sexual addiction. Of course, and having to kind of grieve this reality that was false in many ways. Right. Wow. Yeah. And the the master of the universe thing is that they they're always juggling multiple partners. It's never or very rarely uh, once it's progressed, certainly as far as his had, it's not just he's having an affair with one person. It is um, he's sexting with two people at once while he's, you know, emailing somebody else and and engaging in porn, you know, four to six hours a day. And he was doing it at work. I mean, he could have easily gotten fired. Wow. Um, so the and the, the like they're advertising for sex on Craigslist. And I realized that. Um, while we were talking about it, it progressed very quickly to talk of whether we were going to stay together or not. And I said, you know, I love you, but I clearly don't know you. And and he's like, yeah, I'm really good at hiding it. And I said, um, how can I help you through this if I can't trust you? And he said, you can't. You're wow. too trusting. Wow. That's quite a mature and, I think, difficult situation and yeah. conversation that you guys had. Yeah. And really important because it sounds like you both realized that yeah. there was not really a future. There just wasn't. I mean, there are um, – you read about partners who – and like you said, um, a lot of times it gets discovered, right? And mm -hmm. um, when we were having that conversation, he kept having to leave and go into the next room and then come back. And I thought, oh, well, he can't handle this emotionally. And that was true because what we, he was doing was he was – and I only know this because I looked at the cell phone bill over the next week or something because I knew I was going to have to start splitting our bills, yeah. right? And he had been uh, sexting with two different people in the other room during that conversation about whether our marriage Whoa. was going to – So it's like he needs a fix to yeah. get through anything. Right. Wow. So it's kind of become him. It has. When we were talking earlier, right. um, prior to the show, you explained his situation as sort of having a Jekyll and Hyde mentality. Yeah. What, what does that mean? Sure. So um, his own personal morality is good, is, you know, that's the Dr. Jekyll part. Like, he genuinely wants to help people. That's why he's in a caring profession. But... There's another part of him that can compartmentalize the world because, you know, he watches children die. He watches, you know, traumatic accidents every day. And if he internalized that, all of it, he wouldn't be able to function. And so naturally, he had, you know, professionally, he had sought, uh, I think, a profession where that sort of works for him. But um, it also meant that all of that got locked away um, to the point uh, where he was one person at home and somebody else out in the world. And so it wasn't a big leap for him 
to be another, per, like have a different persona sexually. Um, and what it is is escapism. Um, but they say the dark, like the, the dark part of them um, is like a monster and they treat it like he treated it like it was a different person, a monster that lived inside of him that was trying to take over. It kind of justifies times. it in a way. It's like, that's, that's not me, that's the monster. That's right. Wow. Yeah. And so it's very hard to talk about this to people who know him because they simply won't, it doesn't jive with any part. Right. He was not flirtatious. He was never like, he never hit on our friends. I was very lucky. Some sex addicts do. They take it as a challenge to go through everybody that you know. It's like the tougher the challenge, the more they'll go for it. Right. And, um, and he, and I, I do think that part of the reason that he stayed married as long as he did is because of the challenge. It wasn't sexy unless it was forbidden. Mm. And it's not forbidden. It's fine to be promiscuous if you're single, right? So Right. So he wanted to be married. And he also probably perhaps had the wherewithal to know that if he had flirted with your sister, for example, right. Right. you would find out. And there I goes his whole game. Out. And there goes yeah. his game. And he was a, wow. he's an incredible liar incredible like the people that have stayed in his life do know that about him um and the the, like the dr jekyll part you know i told you like we're these upstanding citizens his favorite movies are the gooeyest gushiest movies out there the biggest romances like the nicholas sparks novels that make me go what that's that's really he freaking loves those things he wanted me because i was transitioning into being a writer he did not like that because i had started off when he met me as a kindergarten teacher and that was perfect. We wanted to be the perfect, sweet, loving family with a white picket fence. We had to have a house, and we had to have kids, and we had to have all of the things that everybody else expected us to be. He never had an innate sense of whether we were in love. Uh, it was always he was always asking other people if they thought we were a good couple. He was what a dichotomy. So, it's like the image consciousness is so interesting because yeah. it's almost like. I don't know, make, almost making up for the monster part or, right. or just making it more of a challenge, like you said, being the least mm-hmm. expecting yeah. person to be doing this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. A lot of ministers, uh, apparently, are sex addicts. Um, a I've lot heard of, that, too, and right. maybe that they're drawn, you know, and I have mixed feelings about that, mm-hmm. but I do think, and how do we know for sure? Sure. But, you know, I have a, my, my grandfather, who's, who's passed away, mm-hmm. uh, was a child molester and mm, was a right. pastor. Yeah. And yeah. I remember thinking, you know, no wonder he went into this position where he yeah. is um, trusted trusted, mm. and and also constantly asking for, for forgiveness. Right. You know, if you, right. do, if you do it, as long as you give it back to God, then it's okay. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's, and, it, and, and uh, my husband was a hero. Yeah, exactly. He, he yeah. actually his first uh, week on the job as a firefighter was 9-11. Wow. So, you know, they're national martyrs and heroes, and you know wow. everybody loved him. You mentioned not having a he didn't have a sense of whether he truly loved you. Right. Did you ever wonder if he's kind of a psychopath or sociopath without a conscience, yeah. or if it was? You know, <laughs> I mean, maybe you still have. I'm later. sure you have lots of questions. Still, I but, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's actually I read because of this. I read the book The Sociopath Next Door. It's totally terrifying book but I think what the the disconnect like I don't think of him as a sociopath because he cared enough about me to break up with me Mm, that's huge he he could have many people continue the longer that they go the harder it is Um, and he did do lots of things we cuddled all the time yeah. And when we went, first went to therapy, and he would talk about this sometime, like, I've had to accept that physical intimacy can be something besides sex. And and so, like, he, he would do small things for me that meant that he cared. Um, he would always, uh, he knew the sign language for beautiful, so he would look at me, you know, and do that little sign. Yeah. But... Once he told me, I realized, you know what? Actually, he hasn't done that for like two years. Wow. And so, you know, like there was, I married a loving man, but he just, he didn't know how to love. And so, and they say this is an escape. They're actually escaping from life and a fear of intimacy. It's all based in a fear of intimacy and abandonment. And his father left uh, the family when he was six. And his mother uh, suffered, like I said, from not just depression. There was a year when he was in high school that she couldn't leave the house. 
And so she was always in therapy. She's always trying to get better. But he definitely felt, I'm sure, abandoned by his parents. Sure. And and at a very vulnerable age. And, you know, like he just didn't feel like he could could cope. And he had said, you know, I started looking at pornography, hardcore pornography, by the time he was 14. Mm-hmm. And uh, his stepfather found him and got him a subscription to Playboy instead because it was more socially acceptable. Wow. Than what he had been looking at. And so there's permission More from the establishment. Acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of having the conversation about, you know, yeah. all those conversations that we lack, which I think right. is a big part of the reason that sex addiction, even though we still don't know the full numbers, sure. you know, how can we? Because it is so hidden. But that's become more prevalent because of the fact that little kids are watching pornography yes. because there aren't those conversations. And right. there's this complete, you know, there's guilt and shame over yep. sexuality and, right. um, all these taboos that just shouldn't be. Now, yeah. you said that you were asking your therapist, right. am I, how did this happen? Yeah. How did I bring this into my life? Was he also asking those questions about himself? Were you guys trying to figure out where it came it, from for him? Yeah. Um, he actually um, went to therapy as well. Um, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. He went to a therapist that the department, the fire department recommended that was used to working with emergency personnel. Um, and it, uh, he wanted to know, like, he was interested in the books. Um, he was not interested in staying with me. He never asked me to stay. He never said he was sorry. He never said, I love you, I want you to he stay. He never said, I'm sorry? No. Wow. He, he could not. Still has never. He emailed me. I tried, we tried to have that conversation in person shortly before he remarried a couple of years ago. And he canceled the meeting because he said he had to work, which is very common. Workaholism is tied to this uh, because it's a way to escape your real life. Uh. If I just stay at work, then I don't have to deal with any of the hard parts of my own life. Because that intimacy is in all facets. It's like nobody gets close to him. That's right. Um, And right, he had a lot of acquaintances, no close friends. And um, he had one, um, and that was from when, you know, they were 19. So, you know, sort of a lifelong kind of friend. But but he did want to understand what was going on because he terrified himself. And in that, we had a window of opportunity because he was seeking those answers. But this therapist that he went to had no training and absolutely denied that there was any uh, compulsive behavior, addiction, that there was anything wrong with what had done. He, that is shocking. He said that, you know, you were not happy in your marriage and you're looking to be happy somewhere else. That's what's going on. That And that was it. He gave a journal to keep track of his feelings. And the part, like, that is not something that he could do. He wow. could not identify his own feelings. That was the whole problem. And he basically got permission to he like did. these these compulsions are just normal. They're just that normal. Whole, and boys will be, be boys, married. men will be men. And that's, that's correct. Which is so damaging. It was horrible. So he actually even like he tried. He changed therapists. Oh. But again, not to somebody who specialized in sex addiction. So that's a note that's important for people. It's so important. Find somebody who does specialize or has experience correct. and knowledge because right. and it's not the same thing as sex therapy. No. Because you're not trying to because it's not trying to rescue our rush, yeah. our relationship. I mean, or sex, make the sex better or something. Correct. Not, no, no, yeah. no. Um, like one of the things was he couldn't have uh, sex with me while he was looking at me. Um, I wasn't allowed to laugh. I wasn't allowed to smile. It all had to be a scenario that he had come up with ahead of time, and it had to be scheduled. How stifling for you. I think I would not yeah. want to have sex. No, it became that way. And it only got that bad, like, in the last two or three years, um, especially noteworthy in the last year. Um, and so, and I, um, on my end, during those periods, I had these wild crushes on other men. And I know now it's because, you know, I was being starved for love. Of course. At home, I didn't do anything about them. But they say many partners, sometimes you get so desperate that you do. But but he did go to a second therapist who also said um, that this wasn't like, okay, sure, maybe it's a compulsion, but you just shouldn't get married. That was that was just his answer. Oh, it's so so awful. It's hard enough for somebody to get help. It's hard, and, yeah. and then when you're seeking it to be shut down. And so um, I guess a year after I had moved out, um, he said, you know, because I was leaving town, he said, there's no way for me to get better. I, oh, I will always feel this way. So there's no reason to try, which is, of course, 
That's the most damaging thing I think you can say about any addiction. And I hear that about many kinds of addiction, too. It's awful, You know, we talked about that earlier about how with eating disorders, too. And I'm sure with uh, alcoholism, you know, and that's not to say that people need to be taught. You can safely put it back into your life. But (laughs) if you don't teach people that they can get through it, then how can you? Then how can you? And uh, and the only model for therapy available at the time was in the books that we were looking at uh, by uh, Dr. Carnes. It's called Out of the Shadows, which is sort of the first book on this. It's all based around the 12-step model. And um, he and I uh, don't have a belief in a monotheistic kind of God. And all of it is about giving yourself over to a higher power. And his terror is giving up control. And like the and he doesn't have a higher power, like none of it applied. None of it applied to us. And he even I mean, I know he was trying because he that book has a workbook that goes with it and the addict is supposed to go to a group and go through that workbook with them and he told I'm like I came home one day and he was sobbing because that book had terrified him so much him try like trying to face that blank page and that is when he went to a uh, SAA meeting sexual um, sex addicts anonymous but again at the time it was pretty new there was nobody there was no long-term survivor or you know person who had transformed their lives they were so there were no ex- no role models there were no role models they were all new addicts together and he said after the meeting he's like first of all they're all freaks and I'm not a freak I can't identify myself there's so much shame around everything so much shame and he said and then afterwards in the parking lot everybody's hitting on each other oh my gosh so it's almost like a (laughs) it's it's basically like a sex bar or something like because then you end up sort of I don't know, becoming competitive with each other yeah. or, oh, yeah. you know, and, right. and I'm sure here, if, if all you think about, if you're controlled by this, this monster that yeah. wants to have this risky sex all the time, right. hearing people talk about risky sex would yeah. probably be a turn on, right. you know, I could only imagine. Correct. I mean, yeah. he's, I'm sure he was sitting there thinking how he could take advantage of the people wow. in that room. So, cause I know he's omnisexual. I know that he had part, you know, sure. partners um, from across the range. And again, it's because... I, I, but and he certainly didn't view himself as homosexual. He, he viewed himself as deviant, and you know, taking pride in that deviance. And my therapist, um, talk talking me through it. Actually, sometimes I would share what we had shared with with him when I went home because there was a period where I couldn't afford to move out. We were living together like six months, but after we decided to divorce, oh, that's comfortable, sweet. Okay. <laughs> It was great. Let's draw a line in the middle of the bed and just pretend we should, we're in different thank rooms. Thank God we had a two-bedroom house. Phew. Yeah. I had no idea like, how we would have done it otherwise. And even know. so, I, I imagine it must have felt like you can't breathe. I was living breathe. with somebody and separated, too. And right. it was like, I remember a friend <laughs> came to me at work and was uh-huh. like, uh, you realize that's not going to work, mm-hmm. right? And so right. finally, and he came in. He was a, a coworker, but a friend of mine came yeah. and picked up my ex and <gasps> took him in. Nice. Yeah. And oh, it was that's beautiful. Because you can't breathe you can't when you're, breathe. you're living in it. Like you said, you didn't have a safe place right. and you were going through so much yeah. and I can see why the initial reaction is like let's try to fix him help him right. but you are going through your own whole thing that I is absolutely yeah and shocking, and he, shocking. he was not shocked by it because he'd been living correct with it. Yeah. yeah like the first year I didn't feel it I mean you're just not allowed to you're numb you're numb and you know and that is a survival skill and I'm really glad for, for the, the fact that I got through all of that because we had to split like I said we couldn't afford to split up um, we finally we went to credit counselors um, one of the things that he really felt that that was a result of him wanting to always be like the neighbors was he uh, he constantly made big purchases he was frugal to the point of scroogeness about like he wouldn't buy a name brand grocery store food but or he would only buy like the you know the store brand yeah but he would come home with an eight thousand dollar bicycle. So that other people could see it? Is that right? And oh. if the guys at work all had big trucks, he needed to get a big truck, you know? And they owned houses, so we needed to own house. And I said, you know, like, we, I, I don't think that we can afford this. For us to continue to afford this, we both have to work uh, full-time plus overtime. You know, I'm trying to transition to writing, so I'm going to need some part-time period. And he just, he's like, yeah, and? We need this bike. We need we need the right. We need wow. the stuff. We need to match. Was he spending money on on sexual escapades as well? Um, right towards the end, I noticed that he was taking out a lot of hundred dollar withdrawals. Um, 
and I, but I do think that that was probably strip clubs versus prostitution because it wasn't enough money yeah. for it to be a lot. And he, like I said, he's the world's cheapest person. And so, he was and that was looking, so it wasn't and he like, was a firefighter. Yeah. I mean, does he need to pay for sex? No. Yeah. And he, what he needed to, but what was interesting was that, you know, like they, a lot of addicts do this. They shame you and make you think that it's your fault that you're not turning them on. That's why you're not having sex. And and it turns out, actually, I don't know who his partners were, but I do know that he never responded to me when I looked like he said he wanted me to look. And also, like, when you read through other women's uh, stories or spouses that have gone through this, they're often not sleeping with that woman. They are not sleeping with Marilyn Monroe. They're sleeping with the plain, maybe, secretary who doesn't wear makeup that nobody notices because she has low self-esteem and he can push her around. She's vulnerable and he's preying on her. It's completely predatory. That's horrible. Yeah. Um, So, no, I don't... I was really lucky, you know, like... He just gave me something I had to take penicillin for, you know. But uh, actually, when I uh, there were two moments when I'm like, "That's it," and one was the "No, you can't help me because I will lie to you," right? And uh, and he was protecting me in that moment in a strange way, right? And then the other one was immediately I'm like, "We've been having unprotected sex, trying to have a kid." You could have given our unborn child HIV. And even though I'm not a mother and I wasn't a mother at the time, I would just immediately shut down. There was no way I could trust my life to this man. Yeah. I wasn't going to, and I absolutely wasn't going to trust. So you definitely put your life at risk. Right. The, my, an, a child for mm-hmm. him, for his dick to be hard, being more important yeah. than my life or the life of a child yeah. was unforgivable to me. That so was, glad you had that strength. It's so commendable. And I, I imagine, you know, many women can can relate yeah. both to your fear <laughs> and your vulnerability and also, you know, being lied to constantly. constantly. How have you learned to regain that sense of, of trust in other people and yourself? Right. Have you? It's been really hard. Um, and it's very gradual. Like I said, I'm about five years out. Um, and the hardest part when it happens is that nobody you know knows about this. At least certainly it was for me. And who do you talk to about it? Uh, another thing that the literature tells you is don't go telling everybody that you know because a lot of people aren't going to be able to handle this. And do you want the whole world to know this about you? Which that's adds so to the shame. Isn't that strange? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's... I have a lot of problems yeah. with the literature out there, especially the first wave of literature about it. There's a lot of victim blaming. It's like um, if you need to talk to someone, the first thing that should be said is you can talk to someone. That's right. I mean, that is completely disregarding it's, the victims. It does. Pain. And you are not, this is not your fault. You are not the problem. And, but one of the things that, that you wonder is, oh my God, what did I do? Yeah. And um, my problem was that people with good boundaries and my, you know, my most stable friends don't know about this and they don't their immediate reaction is to withdraw because it's drama, mm-hmm. right? It's somebody, you know, it's so big, it's so, you know, Hallmark Channel soap opera-y that they don't want anything to do with it. Wow. And so you feel like the whole world, you know, like the, the rug is being um, pulled out from underneath you and you're, you're just at sea. And actually what I did was I started looking around for mentors, you know, maybe older women that had been through a divorce. And that was a big mistake because uh, divorces are all different because relationships are all different. I should have, um, I should have insisted that my therapist put me in touch with other people going through what I was going through. Mm -hmm. And she didn't specialize in it, so she didn't know about any communities. Um, And I don't think five years ago it was as common as it is now. Now, um, you know, we're going to put on your website that there are groups out there. They're they're starting to. That are starting to be out there um, that are not victim-blaming. The the, um, codependent group of sex addicts is not right. That's the first wave of the 12-step program calls you a co-addict. Uh, they immediately label you. And wow. it's ridiculous because you didn't do anything. And in the same literature, it says it's not your fault. But it's because when they first interviewed uh, people about this, they started researching. They only researched the, first they only asked the addicts 
about their like, well, what is? Oh, the the compulsive liars. Correct. Let's ask them all. Let's the questions. let them describe their <laughs> right their families. Yeah. But the um, but what is actually true um, is that you're going through trauma. Yeah. You know, your whole world, the person that you love and trust the most, that you have built your life around, because you're a couple and sure. you took a vow in front of everybody you love to, you know, to, to be safe together, help each other through the world. He has actively been going out of his way to harm you. And he, the, the horrible thing is that he doesn't actually even think of it that way. He doesn't, he doesn't think about it having consequences to you because he's such a master of the universe, right? Like, it'll keep you protected from all of these bad. Was that increasing over time? Correct. So it's yeah. like most addictions, if, if it is, and tell me yeah. if this is correct, it starts out as something that's thrilling for them and yes. uh, like a new, almost like a new crush a or something, a new right. thrill, a new fun thing that's yeah. a daredevil type thing. Right. And at first they feel very in control of it. Sure. And then gradually it starts to take over and yeah. they feel they have no control. Correct. And yet the addiction tells them yeah. that, I mean, starts thinking for them, yeah. starts living for them. Totally. It's totally. incredible he was able to keep a job. Yeah. You know, that's and, and that's actually incredible. my therapist said that um, the loss of a primary relationship is not generally enough to encourage somebody with this deep of an addiction to change. Normally, institutionalization or incarceration uh, yeah. is how rock bottom they have to get because they will end up breaking the law. Because that's just the nature of it. Because it just keeps getting worse and worse. And certainly, you know, we have compassion for these people as well. Sure. You know, there needs to be compassion for everyone. But not to the point that you just accept it and say, this is how you are. Pat them on the head. You know, it's the the root of what what caused it needs to be understood. And then these massive changes. And what I've read is that there needs to be an abstinence from all of these sexual activities, including porn and all these things that feel impossible to them, you know, and I'm sure different things work for different people, you know. Sure. Um, Yeah. The, um, and I, I don't think I ever really answered your question about the, how do you heal part? Um, I think that you give yourself a lot of permission to hurt. Mm. That is so important. Um, what the the problem with the staggering disclosure because apparently that's very common is that you just feel like you're getting over it you're starting to heal and then you're zapped again you're like oh no it's actually worse you remember the time that I encouraged you to go to your friend's funeral because I was really loving and caring about your friend actually I had sex with five people that weekend and that's why I wanted you out of the house would he say that kind of thing to you? I mean, that's you like that and, and it's gradual like that and so you just sort of get over it and then that stopped because I told him he had to stop. I didn't want to know. And, uh, and he was okay with that. Um, but, the, um, but then when you're by yourself, you start to realize things, you know, like the patterns start to go together. And you start to realize more and more when he was acting out. And it's always, you know, so uh, it hurts when you realize that it was when a, ta- a time when you were really caring for him or you felt like you were particularly close. But actually he was doing this other stuff. But then I had the misfortune uh, to ask some of the wrong people, like I said, for advice um, who actively wounded me as well. Um, and that's their, they, that was their problem. Um, suddenly people become jealous of you because you're single. And especially because of my age, older women in their late 50s saw me as young and um, like... Like fresh meat or fre- something? Well, they were jealous. Like they were women who were unhappy in their current relationships. Uh-huh. And they were jealous that I had this freedom. And they sort of needed the, to deal with their jealousy. They would tell you how that, yeah, you probably were, it was probably your fault too. Or um, another woman went out of her way to make sure that I knew this other woman hated me. In my writing group, like we were very close knit and she was actually like monitoring my behavior to make sure I didn't date this single man that she liked, even though she was married. Wow. And the other woman convinced me that she was going to come after me with a gun. You're kidding me. No. So choose your friends wisely. Correct. And then so then I had to just get away, which was totally the right thing to do. And I spent a year grieving, which was really healing. And you allowed yourself that. Did you actually make the decision? I what what kind of was there a certain point where you just said you know at this you you've been feeling numb you've been in shock right. you haven't been letting yourself perhaps feel certain things for all different kinds of very valid reasons sure was there a moment or a situation or was it exhaustion what what kind of <laughs> led you to go no more um 
as far as the grieving or as far yeah, as Yeah, to choose yeah. that I'm going to grieve. I'm going to let myself heal. I'm going to I actually, feel. yeah, there was a great conversation with my sister um, because I left town and I went and stayed with my family for a little while. Some with my parents and some with my sister. And, of course, um, no, none of us had ever experienced this before. But I said, you know, um, how would it be if I moved away from where I am and just wrote and traveled for a while? And she said, oh, my God, that's great. She said, you know what? None of us know what to do for you. But if you tell us, we will do everything in our power to make that happen. I love that conversation. First of all, I have chills uh, when you were talking about your your (laughs) dreams, too. And I think what's so beautiful about that is it's perfectly okay to say, I don't know how to help you. It is. And that is so much more valuable than trying the wrong thing. Other people trying to tell you what to do. Or Yeah, that's that's unconditional love and somebody who really cares about you. So so I guess one takeaway is that, you know, if you are seeking support and the support hurts, right. It's probably not not the right one. Yeah, it's not support. (laughs) Try something else. And realize that right, that you are because what was happening was that those triggers, like, it took me longer almost to get over those friends' betrayal, mm. that what it felt like betrayal, than to get over the my husband's betrayal. Because he wasn't the person you thought. These were your friends. Right. Yeah. And you think, okay, well, there's always a risk in a lover. There's always a risk that it's not going to work out. Sure. But you think that your friends are, you know, okay, but... You've, you've changed from married status to single status. You know, like, there's all these yeah. other factors that have nothing to do with you. They're out of your control. Um, and really, the, the, the people who are rock solid in your life, I, I found this. I told you, I just had a really healing conversation with a friend who, at the time, could not support me. She wanted to. She listened. She had no idea what to tell me. And four years later, we're talking, and she's we were talking about the things that had happened with my husband. And she said... But you didn't tell me that. And I said, yeah, I did. And she's like, well, I don't remember it. And I, I, you have to recognize that your friends and family are going through their own grief process. And she at the time was in such shock, I think, that she just couldn't take it in. And so that's why it's so important for you to get your own support. Get a really great trauma therapist. Yeah, And uh, there are, this is called sexual trauma and relational trauma, and there are people trained in it, and they can help you, and you can go talk to your peers, and then the the people in your civilian life, if they're just there for you to love you, that's that's everything. And then over the years, you know, like I, I have found that I've sometimes tested my friends not knowing that that's what I was doing, mm-hmm. and sort of assuming that they wanted me to um, to lose myself in order to help them, you know, like that they would expect those same boundary crossings, you know, that my ex had done. And, and it's not true, you know, and they're very patient with me and I'm really grateful. But, you know, like I, I the big gift of it is that of my recovery, because you do recover, like you of just course. recover from the I mean, listening trauma. to you, it... It is absolute trauma. And there's no question. I think from the yeah. outside, that's why it's important to have somebody who is, you know, somebody who can be objective, a therapist, for example, who's right. very supportive, yeah. is that it is so obvious. It's hard to see that, that kind of stuff in yourself when you're going through something. It is. But when you hear it, there's absolutely no question <laughs> right. that you are at least as much of a victim, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, uh, to, to this disease, to this insidious uh, disorder yeah. as the person who suffers. Right. Both of you are... Uh, accountable for for getting your own support for right. moving forward, right. and as I understand it, he he didn't move forward. He did not no. He um, I have to say the great gift of shame and guilt during a divorce is that you get a good divorce settlement. <laughs> like mm-hmm. he didn't fight about anything. Everything was really fair. We split everything fifty fifty. There was no haggling. None of that. Um, but like I said, he was struggling then to try to get help. And then uh, once I decided to leave town, that was when we had the I'm never going to get any better conversation. And a year later, he was married with uh, uh, to a woman who was already six months pregnant. Does she know? No, I don't think that he's told her. He told me that one of the last times that we talked, because the, the, last, the last time I saw him in person was when I left town. Because uh, he hasn't, he keeps, like, I tried a few times after I came uh, back to the same general area. And uh, he would cancel and I just don't think I, I, he wanted me to disappear. And I could tell by then I could recognize the 
the manipulation and the unavailability and all of that. And suddenly he had to, um, uh, like, he wasn't getting together with our friends and their kids. And I was just like. He couldn't lie to you anymore. He couldn't lie to me anymore. You, you knew it all. I knew it all. And I could see, like, and he's exhibiting. Of course, he's not going to show us the sexual acting out behaviors. But these are all the same behaviors that he had before. And what I think that he's done is, again, the doctor, like, he wants to be happy. And so he feels like, okay, if I get married and I have this preset family, that's what's going to do it for me. And, of course, all he's going to do is destroy these people. So sad because he's trying. It's just the wrong effort. It's just the wrong efforts. And I really feel like if he had gotten the right help when he was looking for it, maybe— you know, maybe he wouldn't be doing this. Sure. That's why it's so important that you are sharing your story. That's what I'm you hoping. You know, so, so few people, I think, you know, to know that you're not alone if you're going not through alone. this, regardless of which situation you're in. If right. you have the addiction, if your partner has the addiction, right. it is so important to know that there is no shame, right. that you can move forward. You can. And you have come such a long way. Uh, tell us where you are now. Yeah. Um, so I'm happy. Yeah, I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> Great. I uh, I'm not dating, and I'm not interested in dating. And I think that will be the last thing that happens for me, probably. And I don't feel uh, abnormal or like I'm missing no. out. You know, the going back to the very beginning part where the whole part of the trauma is that you feel like your whole life has been a lie because I had dating it dated him for years before we got married I like from 22 to 39 30 you know he, so like half your life basically. right ha, right he was my partner um, whether casually at the beginning you know or then as a married uh, couple and what I came to realize is that my life wasn't a lie I didn't lie. Amen. Right? I loved him. Your reality was real. My reality was... Your love was real. Correct. Your commitment was real. He drew away from that, and there was another part of him that I did not know, but I don't want to know that part. And I'm, you know, like, I I would have been, I would have stayed if he really had wanted, but by then it was was just too late for us. And looking back, you're probably glad he didn't. I'm so glad that I didn't. Um, A lot of women stay with less assurance than he gave me and that is not healthy um, but it, but I say a lot but over 70% of women as soon as they find out are like okay this is not you know because they're their spouses are just too far into it, and they yeah. can't get over it. And the it. trauma that they're going through. The trauma that they're going how through. Could, they can't have that reality that they had Correct. believed in before. Right. So, so yeah. what do you do? I'm glad that a lot of women leave, and I. that's not to say that those who stay no, there's make nothing the wrong decision, with that. Right. You know, and, and sometimes the person who has the addiction heals right. very well. Right. Sometimes they heal more than the partner. Yeah. You know, it's, right. it's different for everyone. It d- actually, that's quite common in reading oh, really? of people's stories, yes, is that the addict recovers to a more fully, but to a fuller extent and, you know, like feels like an in- their integrated self again and is living a balanced uh, life. Because they finally got to heal. Because they whereas... finally got to heal. But, but you are constantly asking, is it real? Is it going to last? Yeah. And I just knew temperamentally I was not the kind of person that could handle that. I d- and uh, for me, that would not have been a healthy choice. But I, I go, you know, I actually, it's caused me to really commit to my writing. And, you know, now I'm in uh, trying, you know, to be a full-time And I happen uh, television to know that writer. you're an incredibly talented you're, writer. You're very kind. It's so, true. Yes. It's really true. And I love the fact that you have had this boldness and commitment to always moving forward even right. when it felt dark. Right. I think that was the most important thing to do was um, so a year I went and lived with uh, with my parent between my parents and my sister for a year and I traveled and I uh, and I wrote and I just, you know, was sad for a lot of that. But part of it was was uh, deciding, well, what am I going to do next? And just giving myself the space that I needed to make that choice. Now, I am i don't have children. I'm very blessed that I had that. You know, not everybody does. And um, But I still think that that was the most important thing that I could have done was, first, I didn't change everything right away. I didn't leave town for over a year after the, you know all of this came out. Um, and it was important that I sort of stayed. I was teaching at the time, and I felt really competent at that. And that was a comfort zone, somewhere I could feel good about myself. And sure. Right. That's and so important. that was really important. I'm so glad I had that. And I wasn't ready for big change for another year. And then I spent a year figuring out what the next big step would be. Yeah. And it's not because I felt great, you know, like I was crying. Yeah. But I also knew that. Well, this is an opportunity, and you need to take advantage that's of it. That's so huge, and I think that's a universal message too. Because mm-hmm. 
I think so often we hear about, I talk all the time about how passionate I am that I found right. my, what I feel to yeah. be my purpose. And I'm so happy. <laughs> and we want everyone to have that. Mm-hmm. But it's not like it's a sudden snap, God, you know. No. <laughs> you might have this beautiful epiphany. Right. You know, I certainly have had those along the way. Sure. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of hard work. Right. It is the feeling the most lost yep. that helps you find it. So, so true. And, and so if you're out there and you're feeling lost, whether you have been affected by addiction or not, right. just knowing that the lost times are some of the most valuable as long yeah. as you still believe. That's right. You know, you don't have to know what it is that your dream is. You no. don't need to know you don't need to know all that stuff. I didn't. I yeah, didn't but you really... stayed open to it. It sounds yes. like you were pursuing it, yeah. knowing that what you had to do was kind of surrender to yep. the healing process and yep. to finding yourself and, right. and all those answers came. They did. And did was it a uh, was it epiphany for you to realize, wow, I'm happy now? Or has that also been gradual? Um, yeah, no, that's been gradual. Um, there have been certain stages, you know, where somebody says, like, um, I was uh, in Los Angeles, like, for a month, and I was feeling really, like, out of place from the sticks, you know, a little hickey. And uh, one of my uh, television writing instructors, uh, I was bemoaning that I wasn't hip enough for this cafe that I'd walked into. I'm like, I would have to spend a year picking out my wardrobe to fit Aww. in here. <laughs> I said, can relate to that feeling. Right? And oh, she yeah. said, oh, no, you belong. Oh, it was so those words. I chills again. Right? It was belong. amazing. Isn't that beautiful? Because she yeah. saw what you couldn't quite see yet, right. you know, but yeah. knowing that it's there and it came from somebody that you trust. Yes. And you, it sounds like you're yeah. trusting more again. You're tr- are you trusting yourself as well? I am trusting myself a lot more. Like now I'm ready to move out into my own place, you know, and really, you know, take those big risks again that you have to take to start a new career. But Absolutely. And I realized that, you know, I do have firm boundaries. You know, mm-hmm. what is a boundary is a whole different conversation, but it's so great to have. Oh, yeah. And really, and I, I know now, like I, I went through enough bad choices that I recognize them. <laughs> Absolutely. So I can That's trust huge. myself again. Gosh. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thank story. Thank you for having me. And I'll be sharing more from you, hopefully, on my blog, I'd as well to. as more resources. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you guys can all check that out. Uh, to learn more about sex addiction, you can go to my blog this week. That's augustmclaughlin.wordpress.com. Uh, do you have a question or a topic you'd like explored on the air? Or if you have thoughts on today's show, I would love to hear from you. Join me and the rest of the Girl Boner community on Facebook and Twitter. Those links are available on my main website, augustmclaughlin.com. Huge thanks to Nicholas M., Delicious LA, and Gloria B., the latest to review Girl Boner Radio on iTunes. I've read them all, and I just so appreciate your support. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating and review, and hop over to my website, augustmclaughlin.com, for show extras and a whole lot more. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.